Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. a pretty grotesque double standard for Australia if the press in Australia finds itself less free at the same time uh, that Australia is trying to help small countries in the South Pacific make their press more free. But if we don't have strong defamation laws, well, then we're also opening ourselves up to some of the, the fake news epidemic that the US, which has really weak defamation laws, struggles with. Governments, businesses, intelligence agencies, I think, should all be asking, how do we map, track, predict these movements in years to come? Because if we're looking for great disruptions to geopolitics or markets or social stability, this is the place to watch. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. And today we are going to be talking about an issue close to my heart as a podcaster. We're talking about freedom of the press. As we will hear a little bit later, this issue has received a lot of attention of late in Australia for reasons soon to be explained. But first, joining me here in the studio are two of my colleagues, Professor Rory Medcalf and pod co-host Catherine Manstead. Rory is the head of the National Security College here at the ANU, and not only does he have a long history in the national security community working as a diplomat and intelligence analyst and a think tanker, but he also started his career as a journalist. Indeed, in 1991, Rory received a commendation from the Walkley Foundation for Journalism, which is the organisation that presents the top awards for journalism in Australia each year. And Catherine, who our subscribers are familiar with but may not be aware of, is a former practicing lawyer, was an advisor to a high court judge, which for those outside of Australia is the equivalent to the American Supreme Court. And Catherine was also an advisor to a sitting minister of cabinet in the Australian Parliament and is now a senior advisor here at the National Security College. So we have two eminently qualified people to discuss press freedom, national security and the law. Rory and Catherine, welcome to this final episode of the National Security Podcast for 2019. Awesome to be here, Chris. Great to be here. All right. So you both recently made a submission to the Parliamentary Joint Commission on Intelligence and Security from here on in, known as the PJCIS. They're holding an inquiry into the impact of the exercise of law enforcement and intelligence powers on freedom of the press. And as a bit of a background for our international subscribers who may not be aware of this issue, Australia has been making global headlines of late on the issue of media reporting about national security matters. 
There's been a concerted push by media organisations for law reform to protect journalists that report on national security matters that, in their view, a series of laws passed since 9-11 in 2001, the pendulum has swung a little bit too far in favour of secrecy and that some matters are unfairly branded as national security issues and therefore out of bounds in terms of reporting and public discussion. But for their part, the security agencies point out that reporting on sensitive issues can damage Australia's national interests. Whilst this has been an issue for constant discussion over the past 18 years, the matter was placed in stark relief recently with two big headline-grabbing events in 2019. The chapter of this story begins in April 2018 when News Corp journalist Annika Smethurst reported that the head of the Departments of Defence and Home Affairs were discussing the potential for the Australian Signals Directorate, Australia's uh, signals agency that also covers uh, cybersecurity, to collect information on Australian citizens, a task that had so far only been the purview of law enforcement agencies and the Australian Security and Intelligence Organisation. On June 4, 2019, under a warrant for publishing material that was classified as an, uh, as an official secret, Smethurst's home was raided by police looking for information related to her story on ASD. On the following day, the Australian public broadcaster, the ABC, was raided by federal police in relation to a program that had previously aired on the conduct of Australian Special Forces soldiers on operation in Afghanistan. These two raids attracted international attention and criticism for what was seen in some circles as an attempt to intimidate the press. Since then, uh, the Right to Know Coalition has been formed by the majority of Australia's leading media organisations to campaign for greater freedom of the press. This campaign had made global headlines in October when participating newspapers all published front pages with text blacked out, similar to secret documents with redacted content. On the 4th of July of 2019, following the high levels of public interest regarding the raids, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security commenced an inquiry into the impact of law enforcement and intelligence powers on freedom of the press, as referred by the Attorney General Christian Porter. The PJCIS, it's a committee made up of both Houses of Parliament and includes members from both of Australia's major political parties. The committee exists to, among other reasons, provide oversight of Australia's intelligence agencies, review national security bills introduced to Parliament, review the powers, expenditure and operations of the national security community and so on. The committee is slated to release its report no later than the week following the release of this podcast. Now, Rory and Catherine, in your submission to the PJCIS, uh, which we will place up on the uh, Policy Forum webpage for our listeners to read, you argued, and I quote, that the inevitable corollary of robust journalism on national security issues is that reporting will occasionally expose material that is embarrassing, even damaging, to security agencies. And I assume you also refer to the government itself. Are you making the argument that the exposure and embarrassment of and even the potential damage to security agencies is the cost of doing business in the liberal democracy? Would this kind of light being shone on agencies that require secrecy to operate effectively develop or damage the trust that we need to have in these organisations for them to exist in a liberal democracy? Well, Chris, I think the important way to approach 
this conversation about media freedoms that we're having in Australia at the moment uh, is is to think about how we first off frame the question and, and what the issues are here. And I think as you touch on there, uh, sometimes this issue is framed as kind of a tension between, well, you can either have democracy and a free press or you can have... Uh, secrecy and security, and we put those two things on on two sides of a ledger, and we try and balance them and say, well, the more secrecy and security you have, well, we need to trade off, and we need to have less freedom uh, of the press. Or if we're going to have a really free, robust press, well, then that some some in some sense, national security agencies need to take a hit. I actually don't agree with that framing, which seems to be uh, a dominant framing in even in the media here, um, because in some senses, having a free press and having a robust, open Open, transparent, contestable democracy actually can be a value add for security. And so in that sense, what we're seeing, particularly in the national security sector in Australia, is a lot of the threats that we face now are threats that blur foreign and domestic actors, things like foreign interference, cyber attacks, uh, terrorism, corruption. These, these types of things are actually security threats that the media can play a big role in uh, pointing out and developing an awareness and a resistance to um, in the public sphere. So I don't think it's right to say that we need to kind of have secrecy or uh, a robust free press. I actually think both security and freedom operate in lockstep here in many regards and we should be careful about uh, wishing away a transparent, open and robust media uh, because we might actually take some hits on the security front as well. Rory, agree? Yeah, look, I, I would agree with that in general, but I just I'd add two, um, two specific points. One is to note that I think the the traditional way of operating among our Australia's uh, policy and security agencies has been a default position of secrecy rather than a default position of openness. And so I think a lot of the tension about media um, disclosures or leaks is not actually about secret information uh, in terms of sources, methods, highly sensitive information that could put risks uh, to lives and so forth, but it's often about decisions and how decisions are made. And I do think that we're moving towards, over time, greater transparency on how decisions are made. I think the media uh, is right to focus on that, and I think our agencies are under pressure now to, I guess, be clearer about how decisions are made on national security, the basis for those decisions, and the perfect example of that, I think, is dealing with foreign interference and strategic competition with and pressure from China, because in a sense, suddenly the agencies in the past few years have found a need to engage with the public debate, to engage with civil society, with the business community, uh, with the media and so forth, but are still not in the habit of, I guess, providing sufficient sanitised uh, carefully managed but sanitised information into the public debate to actually explain why policy settings are the right ones. So I think the the current phase of tension, flux, you know, sort of contradiction, I guess, in a Marxist sense um, that we're seeing between the security agencies and the media is going to have a long-term healthy effect on not only better policy making, but communicating that policy clearly to government, uh, I'm sorry, clearly to the public in order to build a whole of nation position 
on issues like uh, balancing China, dealing with foreign interference, uh, and breaking down that unnatural barrier that Australia has for too long had between the general public and the security community. The, the last point I'd throw into the mix, Chris, is that this isn't just a domestic Australian story. In trying to protect uh, a liberal international order in our region and globally and build partnerships and resilience with smaller countries, a democracy like Australia needs to actually help those countries build up their own antibodies of resistance to, um, I guess, covert corrupt influence from, for example, China or Russia. The way to do that above all, is to support the free press in those countries. It would be a pretty grotesque double standard for Australia if the press in Australia finds itself less free at the same time uh, that Australia is trying to help small countries in the South Pacific make their press more free. All right. I'm, I want to pick apart this idea of how the, the the press can help inoculate us against foreign interference. But firstly, Catherine, do you think that the uh, national security agencies are ready and prepared to have a more open dialogue with the public on what they do and why they do it? So I think we've seen some um, positive steps and some change from um, security agencies in Australia and indeed around the world and a desire to be more open. Uh, for instance, in Australia, the the chiefs of a number of our spy agencies have been in the public a lot more than previously, giving public addresses, uh, issuing public statements, and I think that's a good step and a sign that um, the national security community in Australia recognises a lot of the trends that we're talking about. Um, and also... On the issue of foreign interference, for instance, there are a number of extant efforts going on in Australia um, and on issues of cybersecurity too, where government is increasingly working with uh, industry, uh, the education sector in order to develop some type of whole of society, whole of sector response to these issues. Uh, but I think what one thing that is clear from uh, the tenor of the debate that you articulated um, to listeners before about uh, between the media and government um, is a sense that there is friction and uncertainty and a need for maybe I would say a reset between the media and particularly national security reporters and government and a need to kind of talk through a lot of these issues and figure out what a good new normal looks like, what um, back briefing to journalists could look like, what uh, some changes perhaps, and this will be something that the PJCIS looks at more closely, but what areas of law reform might be needed to give journalists the confidence uh, to do the reporting um, that they need to do uh, without, um, as Rory alluded to before, necessarily going too far and, and revealing sensitive sources and methods and, and what's the best way for journalists to work with government to maintain independence but also ensure that the reporting that they do uh, doesn't cross those types of boundaries which can endanger Australia's national security or particularly the lives um, of uh, people operating in that space. So getting back to uh, the issue of foreign interference specifically, we've seen recently Australian politicians exposed in the media for being uh, allegedly compromised by foreign actors uh, trying to influence Australian democratic processes. Roy, is this kind of transparency that the media can bring and the accountability that they can force Australian parliamentarians and political operatives uh, to face up to, is this the kind of role that you see the media playing in terms of uh, denying foreign interference in Australia? Well, I think we, we, the short answer is yes, but I think we've got to look at the um, the unique advantage that having a robust free media has 
for a democracy in international strategic competition. So if you go back in Australia to, let's say, 2016, when the, the Dastyari uh, affair began to break, and a whole lot of other revelations about foreign influence and interference that are still continuing and are not confined to one side of politics, I should, I should add, just think of a counterfactual. Think of how um, Australia's policy settings would be and how the international policy settings against Chinese influence and interference operations, Chinese Communist Party operations would be if those media revelations had not occurred. I think in some ways we think about the Five Eyes intelligence relationship, intelligence sharing among certain democracies as being a real force multiplier. In fact, uh, the media operated as a kind of early warning system and force force multiplier for a whole range of countries around the world. And that was a contribution that Australia made to really many countries' long-term national interest. So, I think we, um, we we need to think hard about maintaining that edge and not somehow developing a double standard whereby the um, security agencies uh, recognise the value of the media on that issue, but then constrain the same investigative instincts and powers on other issues when it gets a little bit too close to home. Can I just add too, I mean, Rory just looked back then to how things could have been with a counterfactual in, in around 2016. It's also important, I think, to look forward to what threats might be coming down the line. And if we look at the way the world's going, authoritarian powers uh, like China and Russia are really heavily investing in narrative power, in state-owned media companies, and are really quite aggressive in pushing out information um, into the region, uh, into Australia and into their own country. So there's that, in a sense, is, is something that is difficult. Uh, to counter. And one good way to counter that, of course, is through a free and independent media on the other side. Another threat coming down the line, though, as well, or an increasing area of contention is something you mentioned in your first question, Chris, which is trust. And increasingly, a lot of, again, the political warfare strategies of authoritarian powers have trust in the crosshairs. Trust is what has enabled democracies and market capitalist democracies in particular uh, to get ahead. It's the glue that bounds us together as a society and a lot of the tactics that we see from other countries are trying to unpick trust. And so I think from the perspective of someone who might be working in the national security community, thinking about ways in which to maintain trust between agencies and government and and the general population is really important and a perception that government is uh, doing the right thing, that is open to being contested by the media, that has a level of transparency, that can actually be really important in maintaining that trust and kind of pushing back against nefarious attempts to destabilise it in the future. And there are a number of surveys that say trust is something that's problematic across liberal democracies um, not just Australia. So it's something I would say we should be watching in 2020 and beyond. Does Australia's defamation laws hinder a free press? Is that something that we should consider looking at? Well, I think there's a short answer uh, to that, which is yes. And we may have, uh, we may or may not have differences of views on this. I'm not sure. But um, certainly, certainly as someone who's worked in journalism in Australia previously, um, you know, it, it's an extraordinary constraint to operate under when truth alone is not a defence and where definitions of the public interest are incredibly hard to pin down. So Australia does uh, does operate under tough defamation laws. Um, I note that um, in at least one or two instances now, uh, 
coverage of alleged Chinese uh, Communist Party directed foreign interference in Australia uh, has ended up resulting in defamation cases that are still going on with the power to intimidate journalists and media organisations, depending how those go. And it's interesting to note in a global context that defamation laws in countries where the law probably is uh, friendlier to the press than in Australia, such as in France, are now being used deliberately as, I think, geopolitical weapons. So I suspect we're going to see more of this and defamation law reform should be high on the agenda of uh, really the not only the counter-foreign interference strategy for Australia, but the protection of liberal democratic institutions more generally. In general, I agree with you, Roy, but I add a point of nuance, which is we often, I think, are quite reactive to the strategies that um, of foreign interference and that authoritarian regimes use against democracies. And we see elements of our democracy being weaponized against itself. Defamation is one of those. But I think uh, the countries that are doing this take the system as they find it and then find a way to exploit or weaponize it. So if we just change defamation law based on kind of how it's being gamed, whatever the new normal we reach might also be gamed. So the argument I would make is, yeah, we're probably not quite right on the balance, but if we don't have strong defamation laws, well, then we're also opening ourselves up to some of the the fake news epidemic that the US, which has really weak defamation laws, struggles with. Uh, So I'm not sure in Australia that kind of the narrative that Hillary Clinton owned a pizza shop, which was, you know, running a ring of pedophiles, would have worked in Australia because we do have um, robust defamation laws. So I think there there is a balance here and equally as it can be gamed right now, if we swing the pendulum back too far the other way, well, it might be gamed in that instance too. I, I totally accept that. I think you've got a lawyer and a journalist with slightly different yeah. perspectives here. <laughs> what a surprise. So before we move on to wrapping up the year that was and the year that will be, just one last question. This one's a, one that's flummoxed me a little bit. On September 19 this year, as the PJCIS inquiry has been running, the Attorney General Christian Porter instructed Commonwealth prosecutors not to charge... Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Journalists under some sections of the Australia Secrecy Law until he had given formal approval to do so. Uh, he says that he wants to consider individual cases and the balance between the case for prosecution and Australia's commitment to freedom of the press. Is this a workable response to the challenge of balancing freedom and security? I mean, like, how, how is the Attorney General going to measure what it, what needs to be prosecuted and what not, what's not? And how can we be sure that this issue doesn't become politicised within his decision-making? So I don't think that that decision necessarily answers a lot of the concerns of the media in Australia, and that is that they are uncertain about the way that secrecy provisions work, and therefore they need to spend a lot of time, effort, money in assessing whether a story should run, and that can have a chilling effect on whether stories that should be potentially running uh, do or don't. So 
a ministerial discretion uh, does not give certainty about the way the law operates and give a level of comfort. And I think this is something, Rory, that you mentioned um, in your testimony before the committee is we shouldn't necessarily be looking at uh, or measuring the effectiveness of, of laws by which stories run, but by which don't. And if a story dies... Um, that that should have run and could have been of value, uh, then that's probably not a good thing. Yeah, it it, it feels like a, a rather undemocratic way to defend democracy. Leaving press freedom behind us for a moment, as I said at the start, this is the final podcast for the year of 2019. And I wanted to speak to you both about what you think were the defining moments or the defining issues of 2019 and where we're going in 2020. So, I'll start with you, Catherine. What do you think were the issues that really defined 2019? Were there any shocks to the system? Were there any black swans? Were there any issues or occurrences that confirmed particular trends for you this year? So I've got two. One's a technology-related one and one's a people-related one. The first one is I think 2019 is the year where um, we are starting to grapple with what we have wrought with social media and big tech companies. So we see Democratic presidential candidates in the US um, really kind of going after tech in a way I never thought we would see Americans uh, do. We had the publication of Shanna Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism book, and we've also uh, continuing to see the fallout of Russian interference in the US polity, which has now kind of taken a whole life of its own, <laughs> a life of its own with it in, in terms of how the, the Trump administration is reacting to that. But I think it gives us a sense that there is some, something rotten in the state of social media and how do we deal with that? Um, and that has huge implications for national security as well. So I think 2019, a huge turning point, And we're going to start to see governments uh, getting more legislatively interventionist on this stuff. And that's going to be something that we need to be very careful about, of course, because, again, this is the free speech, free press podcast. Uh, Sometimes things that in the short term look like a really good solution might in the long term trade away on those things like openness, transparency, which we've been talking about, also have a value for democracy and security as well. Um, But on the people issue, I think, you know, we can't go past talking about the Hong Kong protests and um, the way in which we've seen people power activated in a hugely um, you know, un- historically unprecedented almost way in, in Hong Kong. Um, and of course, in 2020, we're looking down the, uh, the barrel of an election in Taiwan, uh, where issues of kind of pushback against against China and perceived Chinese interference in democratic processes is also going to be in the spotlight. To me, the most important takeaway, though, of those things, abstracting it out, is the way in which identity is now really shaping geopolitics. Of course, identity has always been a bit of a thing. Nationalism in the 19th century was kind of identity-based. But for most of the 20th century, I think a lot of disputes were based on material interests, based on economics. Uh, We had kind of a Marxist approach to the way that the world worked. Identity politics now and the issue of identity to me is something to watch in 2020, not just in terms of how Hong Kongers identify, how the Taiwanese youth are now identifying as Taiwanese as opposed to maybe Chinese, um, 
but also within our own democratic systems as well. Identity politics is a big defining feature and something that will lead to, I think, social change and uh, new ways that we need to think about um, social disruption, societal um, change, political change, and then, of course, security issues. Yeah, you've hit on one of the issues for 2019 for me, and and, and that's this uh, global swell of people taking to the streets in protest against their government or their living conditions. Um, Of course, Hong Kong has been the particular event that has uh, captured our attention here in Australia. But there was also the yellow jacket protests in France. Hundreds of people are dying on the streets of Iraq. Tens of thousands of people are on the march in Iran. Lebanon has seen its prime minister resign due to public protest. The government in Ecuador has fled the capital. Evo Morales in Bolivia has gone into exile into Mexico because of people rising up against perceived folk rigging. There's also been Santiago, Cairo, Jakarta, West Papua, among other cities that have seen these huge mass movements in 2019, which is kind of becoming the year of the seriously pissed off, where people have taken to the streets in many places, and a lot of them haven't left. Indeed, this issue has grabbed our attention so much at the NSC that we're even going to hold an international futures conference on it next year. We're going to be looking at issues like the future of dissent, future of democracy, authoritarianism, culture, its interaction with technology and similar issues. So if you happen to be in Canberra in April next year, keep an eye out for that. Rory, do you have any issues you think have defined 2019? Yeah, look, a few thoughts on 2019 and I guess what's to come in 2020 and beyond as well. Um, Look, my two headlines, one would be about the great power politics, uh, very much the competition centred on China. And I guess it's not just a 2019 story, it goes back a year or two now. I think the past few years really are in many ways a high watermark for the acceptance of Chinese assertiveness and power in the world and the beginnings of, uh, I think, long-term pushback. Uh, so I think in, some, in, you know, in many ways, the, um, the, the vision that China will, will somehow map the future, uh, that the PRC spends you know, tens or maybe $10 billion a year on in its propaganda effort, uh, that's really coming undone with pushback from many other countries with the revelations about oppression within China, particularly from uh, against the Uyghur community, with the, the extraordinary Hong Kong story that we've been talking about, and with the willingness of a whole lot more countries now uh, around the world to not um, not contain China, but to set boundaries for what their, con- their China engagement looks like. And I think Australia has been a real bellwether in that. The US-China strategic competition is very clearly uh, a bipartisan thing now. I think it's quite nonsense to say that after Trump, if indeed we see the end of Trump next year, as we, we may well not, but that after Trump somehow... US-China relations will become more cosy. Uh, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think we're seeing also others, Japan, India, uh, Southeast Asian countries, some of the Europeans, Australia, find those areas of common cause for trying to set boundaries to China's assertiveness. So I think we're seeing a turning point there, but I would link it with that second theme, uh, the point that um, I think both of you have mentioned, which is the people power issue. I'm not um, focusing so much for a moment on the rights and wrongs of some of these movements. I think there's, it, 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 it's right and easy to sympathise with pushes for uh, civil liberties, especially somewhere like Hong Kong, where established liberties are being taken away. But I'm actually very interested in the tactics uh, of these movements. 
And of course, there's been, I guess, contagion, if you like, of people power in the past. There's been the the, the wave of revolutions in Eastern Europe in the late 1980s and, and, and elsewhere in the world. What's different about this is, I think, the, the marrying of um, seemingly leaderless public movements on the streets with creative use of technology and international networks. And I think um, governments, businesses, intelligence agencies, I think should all be asking this question, how do we map, track, predict these movements in years to come? Because I think if we're looking for great disruptions to geopolitics or markets or social stability, this is the place to watch. And as you say, it's about people uh, first. It's about people above technology, people harnessing technology. That's They're the changes that I've noted this year. Rory, I couldn't help but pick up that you mentioned three words, map the future, when you were talking about coordinated pushback against China. And I think you have a book coming out next year, which may or may not mention those three magic words somewhere. Well, I guess we should talk about it. Well, if you'll permit me for a little bit of foreshadowing. So, look, I do have a I think, fairly substantial book coming out in March 2020, uh, Contest for the Indo-Pacific, with a, uh, a subtitle of um, Why China Won't Map the Future, which may be a little bit provocative. But this is really the, um, I guess, the culmination of uh, some years of thinking and tracking the geostrategic competition across the Indo-Pacific. The formation of the Indo-Pacific, I think, as a structure to understand our region, but also the um, the balancing of China that, in fact, I think the Indo-Pacific concept really, um, really benefits. Happy to answer any questions, but I don't want to give away the punchline. Just the the one the one spoiler I'll throw you uh, though is that is to emphasise that the book is, is is partly about that idea that in fact things are possibly as good as they're going to get for China, uh, and that China invests very very heavily in manipulating other countries and other societies' perceptions of China precisely so that uh, there is not, if you like, resistance to China's political uh, priorities. The book is partly about balancing that picture and explaining that, in fact, if we project forward even a couple of decades, uh, small combinations of other countries are going to have balancing power in their own right, uh, and that while China will play a part in mapping the future, it certainly won't do so alone. Were there any particular incidences this year that have um, either confirmed or changed what you've written in the book? So, I, look, just to even pick up the very latest uh, interesting moment, so Sri Lanka, where uh, China made great inroads some years ago, uh, has recently had an election where, of course, the brother of the former leader has been elected and was assumed to be very pro-China, very sympathetic to China because his brother had been. He's already laying he, down markers. He was markers. the defence minister while his brother was prime minister, correct? Precisely. And he's laying down markers now to say, this time it's not going to be all about China. He's actually inviting other countries in to balance Chinese investment, balance Chinese influence. So even in countries like Sri Lanka this year, Malaysia last year, Maldives not so long ago, some of the Pacific countries where China has made great inroads of influence, those very governments are now asking for balancing activity to take place. And the recalibration that we saw at the big Belt and Road Forum this year in Beijing shows that, uh, to its credit, China is adapting, it is listening, it's realising the limitations 
of its own geostrategic power play with the Belt and Road. But having said all of that, uh, I do worry about, uh, I guess, the, the kind of hubris that has been built into the Chinese nationalist worldview that's been propagated over the past 20 years. We saw that in the huge parade in Beijing uh, for the, um, the, the anniversary of the establishment of the PRC a few months ago, where for the first time, China really went all out to flaunt a kind of almost Cold War-style military capability, uh, missiles on the streets and so on. Um, so I do worry now that there's going to be this collision in the years ahead between China's um, motivation or aspiration to extend influence across this vast Indo-Pacific region all the way into Africa, for example, and the many other pressures on China, uh, a huge accumulation of risk. Uh, So I think we should be hedging away. Yeah. All right. So I'll move to wrap this pod up with my take of 2019 and what will be important in 2020. And Firstly, for me, uh, 2019 will be remembered as the year of right-wing extremism. Uh, Whilst the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia took place in 2017 with all its violence and murderousness played out in front of the cameras for the world. I think it'll be the Christchurch attacks in March this year that will be remembered as the major turning point where the world finally woke up to the threat that right-wing violence poses to us all. Um, Of course, the rise of the right has been slowly building over a decade with leaders like Viktor Orban in Hungary, the Kaczynski brothers in Poland, Le Pen's in France, and so on. Um, But the grassroots of ethno-fascism and right-wing extremism became very real on March 17 in Christchurch when a gunman entered a couple of mosques and killed over 50 people, injuring just as many. The impact of this act was amplified by the fact that he live-streamed it over social media, which left a trail for us all to see uh, of the supporters and enablers that exist in the most obscure parts of the internet, a sort of festering pestilence that continues to exist, threatening to bubble more ignorance and violence up into our world. I think that because this attack took place in a country like New Zealand, not the US or Germany or even the UK, it was more impactful. Uh, Having it occur in a sleepy little New Zealand land of sheep and hobbits forced people (laughs) to accept that this is a global threat and the threat is very real, very ugly and very lethal. Two years back on this pod, we had Nick Rasmussen, who is the former head of national counterterrorism for the US. He was warning us of the threat of domestic terrorism and uh, the form of political extremism that he was seeing in the US. Well, he was back working with the NSC again this year. And let me tell you, not only did he fill a large lecture theatre for a public discussion on this matter, but we also broke our own record on this podcast for downloads discussing his thoughts on right-wing extremism and political violence. The world has really woken up to this threat, and I truly do fear that in places like the US and Germany and France that we will see elements from the groups threatened by the extreme right-wing responding with their own violence. But for me, 2019 is the year of Xi Jinping, not in a good way, for him at least. In 2019, the trade war with the United States has expanded, with the White House directly blaming the Chinese for their approach to negotiations, an approach that was undoubtedly approved by Xi, if not actively crafted by him. Secondly, we've seen the Hong Kong protest movement escalate from small marches by elements of the population, such as lawyers, business representation, and so on, that barely even made local news to absolute chaos that has engulfed the special administrative region and played out on televisions and 
computer screens the world over. Not only have the authorities been unable to rein in the protests, but they've seemingly unified much of the population into a concerted effort against their governance. About two months back, uh, the NSC hosted a tech breakfast for alumni where Ben Bland from Lowy and Elise Thomas from Aspie detailed the strategy of the party, uh, how they were trying to wedge the protest movement, splitting the moderates from the more extreme and more violent protesters and being patient whilst they hoped that the movement inevitably ate itself. We now see how spectacularly this strategy has failed with the pro-democracy movement walloping the establishment at the recent elections, as well as the American president signing into law bills that are going to impact the US-China relationship for years to come. We've also seen the world really awaken to the situation in Xinjiang, which is the westernmost region of China that some prefer to call East Turkestan, where mountains of evidence are pointing towards the CCP putting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of ethnic Uyghurs, a Muslim minority, indigenous to the region, in prison camps as a form of cultural cleansing. Michael Clark is one of our colleagues here at the NSC, and he's been one of the, the leading voices in the world regards the Chinese Communist Party's war on Uyghurs. And he wrote a piece detailing the pretty horrifying similarities between the public justification for Stalin's gulags and Hitler's concentration camps and China's so-called re-education camps. And a lot of the world has noted this potential repeat of 20th century-esque crimes against humanity occurring in China and are now starting to speak out. And not only has Beijing been on the receiving end of a lot of international criticism, but there was recently a serious leak out of China of documents allegedly detailing what is occurring in Xinjiang, which also refute China's claims that these are just educational institutions and other unconvincing excuses that they're being putting forward. These kinds of leaks are not at all common for the Chinese Communist Party, and it's not used to receiving criticism at the global scale and from within at the same time. And the point of all of this is not to demonise the whole nation, it's to point to Xi Jinping, the new autocrat of China that has made himself the new emperor by way of constitutional change. Xi has done away with the consensus system of government put in place by Deng Xiaoping after the excesses of Mao Zedong. He has placed himself at the centre of power and therefore he has made himself responsible for these spectacular policy failures, not solving the trade dispute with the US, allowing Hong Kong to turn into a gigantic thorn in the side of the nation and for drawing criticism from all corners of the world for human rights abuses. So my number one takeaway for 2019 is the immense pressure that is bearing down on Xi Jinping for a succession of monumental policy failures. All right, so that is the year that was and the year that will be for national security here in Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Catherine Manstead and Rory Medcalf, thank you very much for joining me here on this episode of the National Security Podcast. Would you like to wish everyone happy Christmas? Thank you, Chris, and um, happy Christmas and uh, I guess... Best wishes to our listeners for um, peace, stability and predictability in 2020. I can't top that, Rory. So I'll say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we'll see you in 2020 on the National Security Podcast. And thank you very much for listening to the last episode of the National Security Podcast for 2019. 
We look forward to speaking to you again in 2020. And don't forget, we are always keen to get feedback from our subscribers on anything that we've discussed or anything that you would like us to discuss in the future. You can do so by hitting us up at on Twitter using apps policy forum or at natsecpod you can join our facebook group at policy forum pod or you can chuck us an email using podcast at policyforum.net and we're always keen to get your feedback from whatever platform you pod with and if you think we deserve it we'd love a five-star rating so stay safe enjoy the summer or the winter wherever you may be And we look forward to speaking to you again in 2020 on the National Security Podcast. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.